You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's open God's Word and turn to Revelation 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the seats in front of you and you can grab one of those. If you don't own one or know where to find it, please take that with you as our gift to you. And you can find Revelation 14 on page 1036. I'm going to read our text, make a few opening comments, and then we'll unpack it together. Verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel A second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 
I just want to say at the onset, once again, that you will find that I'm landing in places that you probably have not landed with Revelation. I'm landing in places that are different from men that I have valued and gained great benefit from, men like John MacArthur and David Jeremiah. I want you to understand what I am trying to portray as I preach, and that is a method that I believe reflects the authors of Scripture and Jesus for interpreting Scripture, but I'm not saying that I'm infallible, not saying I'm the end-all, be-all of the conclusions that I'm drawing, but I am going to preach boldly. And so what I'm going to declare is where I'm landing on these subjects and try to show you how I got there to simply portray what I believe is the accurate understanding and then the method of getting there. And I just pray that as you come week in and week out, you don't get distracted on the differences we might have on the details, but that we would focus on the path of getting there and the conclusions that are drawn. As you study prophecy in Scripture, more often than not, the details are symbolic, but the truths they are teaching are literal. That's important. I believe the Bible should be taken literally where the Bible itself takes itself literally And most of the time in prophecy, there is a literal truth being taught through symbolic details. So that's the premise of how I approach this text. And now I want to say that I think the main point of these verses is that this is a last call from John. Here's what I mean by that. You remember when we were growing up and our teacher would say at the beginning of the semester, there's going to be a final semester paper that is due before Christmas vacation. In every class, she would creatively remind us there's going to be a final paper due before Christmas vacation. She would write it on the board. She would say it. She would say it loud. She would say it quiet. She would give candy as a motivation to those who finished before it was due. And at the beginning, it was interesting to us. At the beginning, we would come to class anticipating how will she say it this time, but the busyness of the semester, the distractions of life, often cause the repetition of the call to become white noise. And if you've been with us through the book of Revelation, I think you can see that Revelation is repetitive. Even last week, the concepts are repetitive. And if we're not careful, this repetition can become white noise. And I think John ratchets up the symbolism, ratchets up the descriptions to provide, as it were, a last call so that it scares us out of hell, like one Jewish evangelist said. He said, if I could scare people out of hell, I would do it. That's my goal this morning. Look at the big idea of your notes. Your response to this passage will determine what you experience for eternity. Kind of raises the expectations, doesn't it? Kind of moves this beyond a general religious exercise to a personal imploring. How you respond to this text determines what your experience for eternity will be. There are four guarantees in our study. The first one is this. We are guaranteed eternal wrath. We're guaranteed eternal wrath. It says in verse 6, Then I saw another angel. Now the vocabulary and the way that John writes 
signals us to other places in Scripture. It says in verse 6, this angel was flying directly overhead. You can write down chapter 8, verse 13. There he uses this same phrase, flying directly overhead, to describe the eagle who was pronouncing woes of judgment upon the earth. It also says in verse 7 that this angel says with a loud voice, this will be an important phrase that I'm going to draw us to see in Daniel. We also see in verse 8 that the second angel declares fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That is a unique phrase that is used rarely, but I'm going to show its use in Daniel. Then it says in verse 7, that the proclamation from the angel is given to all of the earth. No one is left out. They're called to fear God and give him glory. So laying that foundation, let's go back to Daniel to see how I think John is using these phrases and then come back to chapter 14 to understand what the point is. Go back to Daniel chapter 1. And as you do, my wife last week who... I usually discuss how she thought the sermons go and usually provides great encouragement because she's an amazing encourager. Said, you know, Jeff, I think there's value in giving a little bit more explanation when you go to other passages of Scripture to make sure everybody's on the same page of knowing what the book is, who the characters are, what the purpose is, and where this stands in the history of Israel. So we're going to put up on the screen some background for the book of Daniel. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were identified by being descendants of 12 tribes of Jacob. They were a unified nation for many generations, but there came a split when the tribes 10 to the north followed a man named Jeroboam as king, and then two tribes in the south remained faithful to the Davidic line. That nation is called Judah. If you read First and Second Kings, you see that the kings of Israel are all wicked. They're all wicked, unrighteous men. If you look at the ten tribes of the north of Israel, it was really a counterfeit Israel following a counterfeit God, a counterfeit religious system. And God got tired of that and finally poured out his judgment on those ten tribes by sending them to exile in Assyria. And what he was doing by that exile is showing those two tribes of Judah that if you don't change your trajectory, you will have the same end. Tragically, Judah did not change their trajectory. And so God sent them into exile to a nation called Babylon. So why was Daniel written? Well, really to encourage the exiles. To encourage them that God's people will remain faithful. And you see that in the story of Daniel himself. You see that in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as the exiles read this, they were encouraged that even though things get hard, even though things are distracting, even though it seems like God is not paying attention, God's people will remain faithful. And here are some real examples of that. But Daniel also provides encouragement to the exiles that God is still in control. And there's prophecies in Daniel that remind the exiles that God is still ordering the details of what they are experiencing, what the future will be for Babylon, what the future will be for the Medes and Persians, 
what the future will be for Greece, what the future will be even for a distant empire called Rome. And then there's the encouragement that all of this world system will one day come to an end and that one, like a son of man, will come seated on a cloud. Isn't that interesting? Daniel 7, 13, and 14. So with that background of Daniel, I want you to just notice that chapters 1 and through 6 describe the Babylonian world system. See if you see any parallels to what we've been studying in Revelation and even what we see in our day. In chapters 1 through 6, we see that the Babylonian empire was designed to require outward loyalty to the system. But as long as you showed by the patterns of your life that you were loyal to Babylon and to its leadership, you really could live a pretty comfortable life. In fact, in Daniel 3, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, constructed a golden idol, and when the music played, everybody was supposed to bow. Why? To show on the outside that they were loyal to the system. But it also showed that those who were not loyal to the system would receive harsh punishment. Does that sound like revelation? It might even be a pattern and experience that you have had in your life. Well, when we arrive at Daniel 4, now we can tie into Daniel 14. I want you to notice in verse 28, it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon? Same phrase that we see in Revelation 14. Babylon the great But look at what he says. This great Babylon is something he built with his mighty power as a royal residence for his glory and his majesty. And friend, I would tell you, this is always the motivation of the world system. From Genesis 3-6 to Babylon to Rome to Hitler to what we're experiencing today, dare I say even in the United States, the motivation is always to make us as individuals be great. To put us on the throne of our own lives. But God doesn't put up with that, does he? Look at verse 20 or 31. While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. This is similar vocabulary as what we see in the angels of Revelation 14. The pronouncement that comes from the voice of heaven is a judgment that Nebuchadnezzar will be made insane by God, sent out to the fields outside the city, and will spend time out there until we see what happens in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Similar vocabularies we see in Revelation 14. So what is happening in Daniel 4? What's happening is that King Nebuchadnezzar is fearing God, giving him glory, and worshiping him in defeat and not conversion. That's so important. Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping and giving glory to God and fearing him in defeat. He's acknowledging, I've been defeated. How do we know this is not conversion? Look at the rest of the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't demonstrate patterns of submitting to the God of the universe. He simply declares, you win, I lost. Now we fast forward to Philippians 2.10. You can read that later. 
The Apostle Paul describes what's going to happen at the end, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, what? Will bow. Every tongue will, what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every human being will do that, some in defeat and some because of their conversion. So now when we come back to Revelation 14, we understand, I think, more accurately what John is describing, and that is the judgment that is coming upon individuals and the world system. What does that look like? Verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The, The original language is written in a tense that describes a future event as though it's already happened. So just be encouraged, friend, that the world system that we see around us that is devoted to our own lusts and our own desires at rebelling against the design of God someday is going to be defeated. Praise God for that. But there's more to the story. It describes Babylon the Great as she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is another reason why I don't believe this is a literal empire or a literal city because what John is using by the illustration of sexual immorality is describing what Satan's world system is designed to do and that is appeal to our lusts, appeal to self and cause us to get drunk by that. In fact, listen to this. The quote will be up on the screen. Throughout human history, One of the most vivid illustrations of people doing what they want is the expression of sexual immorality. That's the point. And we'll see John is going to use this topic in the chapters that follow to say, this is what Satan has designed for the world system to appeal to us, our glory, our desires, our lusts. And he's giving through this window into the future a last call for those who are reading, for those who are listening, and he ratchets up the imagery in verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, which, stop right there. Again, the word of God, I think, interprets the word of God. And so in chapter 13, we were introduced to this concept of a mark on the forehead or a mark on the wrist. And I think what John is further showing us, both by context and by the terms that he uses, is that this is not a literal identification. It is a representation of the patterns of loyalty. How do I see that? Look at verse 9. It says, if anyone worships, the tense of this verb is a present tense. This means it is a pattern of our lives and receives, present tense, a pattern of our lives demonstrating loyalty to the world system. It says in verse 10, somebody who demonstrates by the patterns of their lives loyalty to the world system and not to King Jesus will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Oh, but look at this, poured full strength. The world right now is experiencing the judgment of God, but it is a mixed judgment. It's not full strength. Full strength is the end. Full strength is the final authority on your life and mine, and we'll see that more in just a moment. 
And John uses imagery here to convey and ratchet up the intensity of the last call. Look at verse 10. He will be tormented with fire, sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they will have no rest day and night. Listen, I want to make two statements about hell right now and stand on the authority of all of Scripture in these statements. The first is this, that eternal judgment is forever. It is not just bad and then it's all done. It is forever and ever and ever. It is not annihilation. There will be torment, physical, emotional, spiritual, for eternity. But that's the second statement that I want to make, is that when we think of hell, there is no image we can come up with in our mind that comes even close to the description of the torment. And we see in the Bible descriptions like lake of fire, and I think of a, you know, just like this flowing lava. It talks about here fire and, and sulfur and smoke rising up. And so I think about you know, what my experience is with fire. And, and the point is not for us to get to a place where we have a complete understanding of hell. It's always intended to blow our minds. And we're going to see that Jesus himself understood it perfectly and it caused him to sweat drops of blood. So when you're thinking about the eternal wrath of God, it is to move you to personally respond, but then to share the gospel with others. And friends, there should be no one in your lives who is such an enemy that you do not pray for their salvation. There should be no one in your lives who the awkwardness of talking about the gospel is so great that you don't move past that. Because what John is revealing here by the description of these three angels is that there is an eternal wrath. Look back at verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. Did anybody, when I read that, think, why doesn't it say the eternal gospel? I think the reason for that is that John is not drawing attention to the good news that is offered through conversion, but instead the timeless reality of the world system and future judgment. Let me illustrate it like this. The world is never satisfied, is it? It always wants more. Consider the topic of LGBTQ+. The world system keeps adding letters. If you give a little the world wants more. Consider Martina Navratilova. Remember growing up and watching her play tennis and even back then seeing that she was an outspoken proponent of lesbianism, women's rights. Just a while ago, she came out and said that there is a biological distinction between a man and a woman and what did the LGBTQ movement do against Martina Navratilova? The world is never satisfied. That's why here it's described as wine that leads to drunkenness. It's intended to addict you to the system. And John is saying, know this, that if you're addicted to the system, if you're trying to give even a little bit of loyalty to the system, someday 
the judgment of God's wrath will be poured out on you and you will experience it for eternity. Which brings me to number two, the guaranteed eternal rest. What a merciful and gracious God we serve. After that heavy statement and section we see in verse 12, here is a call. This is where I get the title of this sermon for the endurance of the saints. You know, the most important question you can ask yourself right now in this moment is, are you saved? Are you going to avoid the wrath that we just studied? And the entire book of Revelation and even these two verses give us how we can answer that question. Verse 12 says, the endurance of the saints, God's people will endure. It doesn't mean we won't have snapshots where we sin. It doesn't mean we won't have seasons of life. We're in wildernesses and And we don't necessarily look like Christ followers, but the patterns of our lives, the mark on our forehead will be that we are faithful and we endure. It also says those who keep the commandments of God, that means the instruction manual, the constitution that we're following is the word of God. It says that we are putting our dependence and our trust in Jesus. This is how you can know if you're followers of Christ, and that's the gift of the local church. Brothers and sisters, investing in one another's lives, calling out when we're not demonstrating these patterns, equipping one another and encouraging one another to continue on when we are. What a gift this is. But the promise in verse 13 is that those who die in the Lord are blessed. You know, there's been... Some opinions that I've read that this means those who die as martyrs during the seven years of tribulation or the three and a half intense years of tribulation, but I don't, I don't think that's what this means. Because I think if we look at how John has been describing those who die in the Lord, he's not limiting it to martyrdom. Yes, it will include some who are martyred, but anyone who dies in the Lord gives evidence, verse 12, that they endured They give evidence by the patterns of their lives that they obeyed the commandments of God. They give evidence that they have placed their dependence on the completed work of Christ. And some will be martyred, but some will live long lives of faithfulness. And others will die somewhere in between. Blessed are those who by the patterns of their lives show that they have been transformed by the blood of Jesus and their gift is that they will rest. You see that in the text. We get a taste of that rest in this life, but we'll one day experiencing, experience it perfectly for eternity. Let me move us beyond our own expectations of rest to see what the Bible says about rest. Here's a screen that shows some verses that develop a theology of rest. The rest that this verse is talking about was modeled by the creator in Genesis 2-2 at the end of six days of creation. On the seventh day, our God, what? rested. Genesis 5.29, we are introduced to a man by the name of Lamech, and Lamech was so overwhelmed by the world system and sin and corruption, longing for the rest that was promised in Christ. In Genesis 3.15, he names his son, a name that in Hebrew sounds like the word rest, Noah. 
Deuteronomy 12, 9, the promise that God gives to his people Israel is that the physical land they were headed into called the promised land was intended to be a pattern of the rest of Genesis 2, 2, of the rest that can be found as we abide in our relationship with God. Which moves to Psalm 95, verse 11. This rest is accessed by genuine faith. And it's experienced, Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, through abiding in Christ. This is the blessed life. This is what the psalmist refers to in Psalm 1.1. This is what Jesus refers to when he says to Thomas, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe by faith. What a glorious contrast to the guaranteed eternal wrath that we have the promise of guaranteed eternal rest. Which brings me to number three, the guaranteed expert referee. I have to acknowledge I've tried to fit a round peg into a square hole, but hopefully you'll see what the point is. And hopefully by now, the contrast between eternal wrath and eternal rest has you longing for eternal rest. So who will determine what your eternity is. Let's look at the text. Verse 14, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. And we know that Daniel is referring to, or John is referring to Daniel. We also see Jesus mention this in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. And also back in chapter one, verse seven and 13, Jesus says, I am the son of man. I am coming on a cloud. And so what John is revealing here is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 14 and following. Now what's interesting, and I don't know if any of you asked this question of the text, how can an angel, verse 15, command Christ? I think that's interesting. And we let scripture interpret scripture and we recognize in the gospels that Jesus laid aside this aspect of his omniscience, didn't he? He declared no man knows the hour or the time when the end will come, not even the son of man. And so this angel is declaring to Christ the time is at hand. The angel commands Christ to wave his sickle over the earth and there is a harvest that is taken. And in verse 17, there's another angel with a sickle and then another angel instructs this angel and says, you swing your sickle and you're gonna be gathering grapes. One is gathering wheat, one is gathering grapes. And so we see this to be the great harvest at the end. Now, this one is interesting. This one is judgment. How do I determine that? Well, verse 18 says, this angel who gives the commands has the authority over the fire. And you can look at chapter eight, I think it's verse three, where we see this angel described as the one who hurls fire of judgment down on the earth. So this harvest is judgment. And the rebellious idolaters of earth are described as grapes. And it says, these individuals will be gathered and placed into the winepress of God's wrath, and the winepress was trodden, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Now, we just pause right here and say that I've read many commentaries 
that believe this is describing a real, literal, historical event called Armageddon. That there will be this battle, and so many people will die that there will be literal blood from those killed that will rise to a literal level of a horse's bridle over 200 miles, which is what 1600 stadia is. I don't think that's what this is saying because, again, God's prophecy typically provides symbolic details to teach literal truths. So so what are the symbolic details? Well, let me highlight them for you. Verse 20 talks about these being judged outside the city. When you look at how John has been developing this concept of city, he's not referring to a literal city. He's referring to the presence of God with his people. You can go back to chapter 11 at another time, and you can see that the description of the city of Jerusalem, the description of the temple is intended to be symbolic details describing the literal truth of God dwelling with his people, and in chapter 11, specifically the church. So what verse 20 is telling us is that the rebels, the idolaters, will be judged, and their judgment is outside the presence of God. And then the symbolic details of blood and horse's bridle and 200 miles, I think, is intended to demonstrate the literal truth of comprehensive judgment. 200 miles, some scholars have identified as the distance between Tyre and Egypt's boundaries, which is essentially the nation of Israel. So for the original audience, they might have known that and seen this description and said, ah, this is referring to comprehensive judgment. Who is the one who determines which group we're in? I remember growing up, I played basketball, and I learned very quickly in those early years that the guys who came in with black and white stripes and had whistles in their mouths were sinners, (laughs) that they were fallible, that every time they blew the whistle, it was oppressing me. But then I learned the value of a referee when I played pickup games on our driveway, and we would have these epic battles with neighbors, and Those games would dissolve into, that was a foul. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. That wasn't a three-pointer. Your foot was on the line. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. And the game would just stall. And we realized in that moment how important referees were. And then I became a basketball official. And I realized we weren't sinners. We were holy. (laughs) That every time we blew the whistle, it was infallible. I'm joking, but the point I want to make is that an official has a rule book. An official has a whistle. And the official's task is to recognize where a rule has been violated, blow the whistle, make that declaration, and that's the end of it. I want you to see who the expert referee is right here in the text. It says that the angel who instructs Christ... Verse 15 came out of the temple. Do you see it? Verse 18, the angel who instructs the second angel with the sickle comes from the altar, which we see back in chapter 8. This is the heavenly temple. Again, not a literal place, but instead the presence of God. And so what this is showing us is that the expert referee is God himself. 
That when God blows the whistle of determining which harvest we are in, that is the end of it. But in his grace and in his mercy, he lets us actually read his rule book. Now we have different voices of authority in our lives. In fact, it reminds me of the Wesleyan quadrilateral of authority. We'll put it up on the screen. And maybe some of you have related to this, is that we bring voices of authority into our lives. Some of them are life experiences. Some of them are traditions like denominations or family. Some of them are reason and our logic and our intellect, but the most important source of authority for any human being's life, but specifically to the bride of Christ, is the next screen. It's Scripture. And I've had conversations with you, and I've struggled in my own journey as I've wrestled with what is true, because these other voices can be pretty powerful. Some of you have been through amazing experiences. Some of you come from incredible traditions. Some of you have brilliant intellect I could never even dream of having, but those are always secondary to the ultimate authority in our lives, which is the rule book of the referee, his work. And his word tells us the path, the gateway, the resource, the responsibility of how we can determine which group we are going to be in, which brings me to number four, the guaranteed extended resolution. The guaranteed extensive revolution. Would you turn back to Luke 22? We're going to go outside of Revelation because Scripture interprets Scripture. So John has been talking about the cup of God's wrath. Joel 3 verse 8 also talks about the cup of God's wrath. But I I want you to see where I think this text in Revelation 14 is specifically pointing us. Luke 22 verse 42, Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane says this, Father, if you are willing, look at this, remove this cup from me. I think Jesus was anticipating the cup of wrath that John is describing in Revelation 14. And friends, his anticipation of drinking this cup moved him to fear, moved him to anxiety, moved him to sweat, drops of blood. So it's important for us that we attempt to grasp this cup of wrath as Jesus did. And I found a quote from John Calvin that I think summarizes it brilliantly his horror Jesus was not then at death as a passage out of the world but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with the inconceivable vengeance it was our sins the burden of which he had assumed that pressed him down with their enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. You see, Jesus Christ understood perfectly the cup of God's wrath. And even though he had no sin, he was about to drink it, listen to this, for those who believe. And the reality of that judgment overwhelmed the Son of God. 
But I think this combined with Revelation 14 reminds us every human being must drink the cup. And either you will drink it because you have demonstrated patterns of loyalty to self and the world system, or you will be entered into heaven because you have trusted in Christ drinking it for you. Which brings me to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because it's not enough for us to walk through this text and to learn information. Because how you respond to this passage will determine your experience for eternity. My question to you, friend, is have you ever stepped off the throne of your life and submitted to King Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you received the forgiveness of your sin nature by putting your faith in the completed work of Christ, putting your faith in the fact that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath if you believe? Oh, friend, if you haven't, do that today. I beg you, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. So in that way, this could be your last call. You can call out to him right now if you want to ask more questions. Members of our prayer team will be at the ends of the platform. They would love to answer your questions and pray with you. If you give your life to Christ this morning, they will point you in the direction for how you can continue to grow in your newfound faith. Friend, if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ, are you enduring? Are the patterns of your life that you are obeying the commandments of God, are you depending every moment of every day on the completed work of Christ? Maybe you're in a wilderness snapshot. This is your opportunity to repent and be recalibrated to Christ. Is the reality of the weight of eternal wrath so vivid to you that you are willing to pray for your enemies. You're willing to pa move past awkwardness. You're willing to share the gospel so that your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your, your neighbors don't one day drink the cup of God's wrath. Oh, and are you celebrating the fact that someone did drink that cup for the sinners who repent and that someone is King Jesus? What a glorious reality for us to celebrate as we pray, as we lift up our voices in song, as we head out and live for his glory. Father, I thank you for this passage that is filled with incredible, awesome, and difficult to understand details. And while I believe the, the summary and the conclusions I've landed on are defensible from the rest of scripture, I pray that we would all be unified on the literal details of John's point, that there is an eternal wrath, that there will be eternal rest, that there is an expert referee who has declared that the only way to heaven is through the extensive resolution of Christ drinking your wrath of judgment. Would you now use your word to bear gospel fruit in our lives that will reflect Christ in the way that we think, speak, and live all for his glory. And all God's people said, amen.